1: You're listening to a podcast from Seven O Two and Cape Talk. The Friday Stand-In, your number one news and
2: talk station. Welcome back to the second hour of the Friday Stand-In. I'm Michael Yordan, and in this hour, we will have our regular scientist, Dr. Chris Smith, answer your science questions. And in the second half, we'll be exploring the big business of startups. So if you have a question for Dr. Chris or you want to share anything else with us, please get in touch. You can call us on Double One. 883-0702 or 021-446-0567 or you can text us on 31702 or 31567 so thank you Dr. Chris it's great to have you in the studio and be- before I you know, hand over to you um, I want to tell you that I always thought you cheated. I always thought you had the questions before the time. And I always thought you had maybe Google in front of you so you can look it up. But today you're in studio. You're in South Africa. Um, obviously, it's an honor having you and meeting you here. But um, the most amazing thing, and I'm telling all all the listeners out there who want to call in with questions, is this is for real. You can ask him anything, and he's going to do a damn good job uh, of answering you. So, Can I just kick this off? You (laughs) hope. But my first question is, you know, we have about 11 million kids uh, in our schooling system and uh, just under a million people doing tertiary education. And many of them struggle with memorizing things because a lot of our education system, which we're going to talk about later, is still rote learning. You've just got to remember stuff. You can't Google it. Have you got any tips for them? How can they become like you? How can they just memorize things as well as you do?
1: Do you know, I don't know. Uh, no, I'm just
2: kidding. Um, <laughs> you had me there. The, the
1: thing, the thing that is most important in doing anything in your life, and you will know this better than anyone, Michael. And I'm so glad we've actually got to meet um, because Thank you. I, I you know I, I've, I did a bit of reading up because I always read up on, on who I'm going to meet and that kind of thing. And <laughs> so that's and, your first. You know, step you're a real three. mover and a shaker, and uh, and so I think one of the things that uh, it's clear from from your track record is it, I think the the saying "Do a job you love, and you'll never do a day's work in your life" is yeah. so true yeah. because yeah. motivation is really important and if you're motivated and you do something because you're enjoying it and loving it all of the stuff like actually remembering it taking on board the facts they take care of themselves if you play a computer game no one actually makes a physical effort really to learn how to become good at a computer game a but you remember example. all of the, the maps as you explore dungeons you all the little trips and and, t- and things you have to do to, to win you learn those things without even realising you're learning them because you're having fun at the same time now if you find something you like doing that motivation takes care of all that and you will love it now for me being an uber geek uh, is all part of the formula and, and I really enjoy reading and, and acquiring knowledge and learning things and understanding how the world works. And so for me, uh, it, I find it so fulfilling that uh, I would just educate myself. Um, so I think if people can sort of, sort of think about uh, how they become fulfilled in what they're doing, then the rest of it takes care of itself. S- so where you can choose something that you enjoy, now that
2: may not be at the disposal of every student, they may not like biology, but they must try and make it fun. And I suppose so do educators. They must try and not just educate but also entertain their pupils because in the process yep. you do remember better.
1: Yeah, and we've always said, you know, when I created The Naked Scientist, that the mantra was, make people laugh and then think. Because at the end of the day, if people are having fun, then they will attend much better they attend for much longer and they remember much better and so science with a sense of humor you know it seems an unusual and, and slightly erratic strange mix but it's an absolutely essential mix because then if people are enjoying themselves then they they don't get bored and turn off and there are too many examples of really really fun things being absolutely destroyed by turning them into a boring experience
2: well, wonderful. Um, so I'm sitting here not just with a naked scientist, but with the naked scientist. And you can phone him. You can ask him anything you want. Our numbers, once again, 011-883-0702 or 21 446 So we've got our first caller. Um, he's Chip, and he's phoning us from Komiki. Over to you, Chip.
1: Hi, I'm Mr. Naked Scientist. Hi, Chip. Hi there. Um, I wanted to know if uh, waves travelling through the ocean are slowed down by kelp beds. Well, when anything moves through a medium, whether it's water or the air, then uh, actually the medium it travels through determines how fast it goes. So the speed of light, for example, if we just take light, which is another form of a wave, light actually travels at the speed of light in the medium in which it's travelling. And when light goes from, let's say, uh, a vacuum in space into the Earth's atmosphere, it does actually slow down a little bit. And when it slows down, it bends a little bit, and that's called refraction. And that's actually why you can see a transparent window, even though the glass is transparent, you can see this window there, because some of the light is being refracted or bent back towards you. Now, when a wave is travelling through the deep ocean, the amount of displacement, the height of the wave going up and down, is actually very small in the deep ocean because all the energy is being distributed uh, across a very big amount of water from top to bottom. As it gets closer to the shore, then all of that energy has to be distributed in a much shallower volume of water, so the wave gets much taller, and the wave starts to interact with the seabed, which uh, exerts a drag on it, Mm. and the wave will therefore slow down. So waves will travel much faster in deep water. They'll travel more slowly but be more apparent in the shallow water. Okay, and and the presence of the the kelp um, in the in the water column would that slow the? Yes, I mean, it I would on, because on you're exerting a drag from force surfing, on the um, on the wave, and it, it appears that the waves. Don't slow down. They just get smoother as they come in. Well, as they as they interact with the kelp, then they're going to lose energy because what you're doing is the kelp is an elasticy sort of tissue in the water, and it's got mass. So the displacement, the wave going up and down, is going to move the mass of the kelp up and down, and therefore you're going to have some losses, Loss and it's go. and it's therefore going to take energy out of the wave. Okay.
2: Oh. So I'm, I'm sitting in front of uh, the naked scientist Dr. Chris Smith here and it really is true he doesn't look the stuff up, he doesn't have paper in front of him he can answer those questions so cleverly and it's your opportunity to phone in and ask him your questions so we're crossing now to Sydney from Ferry Glen what's your question Sydney? Hello,
0: um, hi, hi, good morning Michael
2: uh, good, good morning please. Go for it, you're, you're welcome go ahead please uh, yeah,
0: I just want to find out please. I, uh, I mean I know we've talked about this before I was just further whether there's anything um, you know unique about um the human brain that account for the difference between black society, I mean like Africa and it's a typical white like like I mean like Scandinavia. Like all the problems I'm dealing with now with the president and all that, it never happened uh, in Denmark or Sweden or I mean or I mean or Norway. What are we so different in terms of um I mean, co- uh, societal maturity. At the
1: point. Okay, so, I mean, can I crystallize the question by saying, why do we behave the way that we do when we look at different societies in different countries? Uh, how, do, how do we account for that? What's the brain I, basis for that difference? I mean, yeah, I
0: difference? mean, in Africa, we never talk about international space stations. We don't think about making... I mean, very glad buying cars from Germany, but, um, like, we never think about making... I mean, our cars selling to Germany. I think what in the brain actually
1: accounts for the difference? Well, there's a huge amount to be said for for what we call uh, nature versus nurture. Now, the fact is that every anatomically modern human on Earth has their roots in Africa, because modern humans evolved in Africa, and we. ...moved out of the continent of Africa and populated the entire Earth about fifty or 60,000 years ago. Uh, And anatomically modern humans first appeared in Africa maybe about a third to a quarter of a million years ago. And it was only about 50,000 years ago that then people did have this big exodus. Therefore, genetically, everyone's genetically compatible, everyone's the same, and we're all the same structure but basically the society in which we've grown up in since and evolved in that has a nurturing influence on the way that we develop and the mindset that we uh, actually embrace subsequently so therefore the education you receive the media in which you find yourself in terms of society and, and societal norms that determines your ultimate behavior and your and your potential in terms of what you're going to do with your life and a really good example of this is people would say well if i went to say the outback of australia and i find some aboriginal people there um if i gave them an iq test to do then i would conclude they wouldn't do very well because some of them probably can't read. We know many of them can't. And we know that they don't do very well in IQ tests. Now, that doesn't mean they're not intelligent because this civilization of people have survived in one of the harshest terrains on Earth for more than 60,000 years. So they're clearly intelligent, but they're not intelligent in the way that, that we would rank intelligence with an IQ test. Take a person who would score very highly like Albert Einstein on an IQ test and put them in the outback of Australia. They wouldn't live for very long. Um, And so it's how you judge what we think of as being intelligent and society and the environment in which you develop has a huge amount to do with that.
2: Thank you, Dr. Chris. We go to more of your calls for The Naked Scientist after this. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. And now we really are back. Uh, We're back uh, with 702 with Cape Talk and we're listening to The Naked Scientist who can answer all your questions, especially those that you can't Google yourself. Um, we've got Rod on the line Rod you're finding from Randberg what's your question please
0: morning Michael, morning Chris we live in one of the highest thunderstorm belts in the world I believe one thing I've noticed and it's not once, I've noticed it quite often that with a thunderstorm approaching we might get little bits of drizzle but the rain only really starts to come down hard after there's been a fairly near strike of lightning and then a very loud crack of thunder why does this happen? I'll listen on the radio
1: Hi Rod, well th- the bottom line is that thunderstorms are just big storms, they correspond to patches of the sky where there's a huge amount of energy in the atmosphere, you've had lots of warm sun which has evaporated a lot of water from the land, the water evaporates up into the air as water vapour, as the warm rising air goes higher and higher in the atmosphere the gas expands and if it expands it cools if it cools it then can't carry as much water so the water condenses into water droplets you get these enormous storm clouds with very powerful wind currents in them now it it follows that as this storm approaches then you go from a time when there's going to be no rain because there are no clouds to an area where you're going to have rain and at the margins you might have lighter rain because as the droplets come down they're passing through warm air and some of the water is going to re-evaporate and go back up in the cloud but the vast majority of the water isn't going to start coming down hard and making it to the ground until you're right underneath the storm system and the thunder is made by the ice and water particles in the cloud jostling around inside the cloud on the air currents going up and down over many kilometers inside the cloud and and doing the sort of ice crystal equivalent of rubbing a balloon on your head and then sticking it on the ceiling that's how static charges build up and that's how we think that that lightning actually forms that's how the charge builds up inside the cloud so it's not really surprising that when you have a big clap of thunder and a big strike of lightning that the, the big heavy rain comes down at the same time because it's all part and parcel of the same process.
2: Great, thank you very much for that answer. Um, Frida, you are waiting for us from Belleville. Uh, Frida, we'd like to hear your question to the Naked Scientist.
0: Uh, Hello, my question is uh, when you put something on the stove, the electric stove, when you switch it off, uh, it still cooks for about 10 minutes. Um, And I switch it off long before and it still cooks. so one can save electricity. But I don't know what the reason is for it.
1: Well, this is effectively latent heat, Frida. When you heat something up, it has what we call a specific heat capacity. In other words, you give energy to something, and when you give energy to anything, it increases the temperature of that thing. Water has a very high specific heat capacity. You have to put a lot of energy in to get the water temperature to go up by just one degree. Now, in order to go back down to the starting room temperature, it's got to give that energy out again. And in order to get a nice cooking experience, most cookers and most cooking utensils, big pans, tend to have a very thick, dense, high specific heat capacity material like um, steel or copper uh, or uh, iron. And the copper top, I'm sorry, and the cooker top is often quite similar. And so, even though you've turned the electricity off there's still embodied heat energy in there which flows out through the food for a while until it normalises with the room temperature. Um, and so that, that, you, that that's all that's going on. You're not supplying any more energy, but it's slowly dropping in temperature as the energy leeches away from the cooker surface. Thank you.
2: Jan from Auckland Park. What is your question?
0: Uh, good morning. Um, yeah. Regarding commercial jet airliners, um, I live on the initial approach path towards the airport. So what would happen... Um, Aircraft coming in for landing, flying directly at me. There's no sound at all. It's completely inaudible. Then, within a one-second period, it changes from a very high-pitched noise to a low-pitched noise. Um, I want to know if this is some form of the Doppler effect or, or if it's due to something else.
1: Well, there's a couple of things going on here. Um, the speed of sound is well, 700 um, miles an hour or so, isn't it? And the aeroplane isn't going that far. So it's not that the aeroplane is actually outflying its own sound waves. Otherwise, you'd be having sonic booms and things all over the place. The aeroplane approaching you is approaching you with minimum turbulence off the front of the aeroplane. That's why it's, it's actually shaped the way it is, to cut through the air. So the amount of turbulence coming towards you is low... The air also that the aeroplane is landing into is trying to land into the wind. Um, Most aircraft approach into the wind for various reasons and therefore the sound is also going to be carried away from you by the wind going away from you. Once the aeroplane has gone past you've got lots of dirty, mixed-up, turbulent air made by all the rough surfaces on the back of the aeroplane, made by the engines, and also the fact that the air is now blowing the sound back towards you. So there's a range of factors here which are going to determine how it sounds different going towards you and away from you. There will be an element of the Doppler effect because when anything moves, and it makes sound, and it's moving through a medium like the air as it's making the sound, it, it will lead to a change in the pitch of the sound. But that's not the reason why it sounds louder and quieter as it approaches or goes away from you so much. That's largely the other reasons I've outlined. Now, just something about Chris
2: Smith. You're listening to him. Chris is a medical doctor, a scientist. He's employed as special registrar and as clinical lecturer in virology at Cambridge University in the United Kingdom. But he's visiting us in South Africa. He's in Cape Town now. He tells me he's been here 10 times. And we're now jumping from one Chris to the other. So from Chris um, Smith, um, there's another Chris uh, waiting for us in Rivonia. Uh, have I got your name right there? <laughs> yeah,
0: good morning. How's it going, Chris?
1: Hi.
0: My name is also Chris Smith, so by the way. Um, ben, I've got a strange question. Why sometimes when you're having a wee do you get that shudder up your spine of your back?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I do you know it's funny. There's a studio full of blokes here and everyone simultaneously... You could, you could tell they've all had that experience. Every, everyone shuddered in their seats. The reason for this is that when you are going to the wee... This is uh, an important and, and quite involved neurological process because in order to have a we, you've got to do a range of things. One, you've got to switch off the inhibitory system, which is keeping your bladder relaxed, because your bladder's like a bag, a bit like a balloon, which fills with urine at the rate of about one milliliter per minute. That's how fast your kidneys make wee. So your bladder has got to receptively relax to accommodate the urine, so you've got to switch off the muscles when you're, when you're accommodating urine. You also have a sphincter, which keeps the urine in the bag. It's like, it's like sort of squeezing your fingers around the neck of a balloon. It keeps things closed. And when you want to go to the wee, you've got to reverse both of those processes. So you've got to relax the sphincter and you've got to constrict or or contract the muscles around the bladder. Now, when you do this, it actually activates a whole range of other, probably other muscles and and sort of spills over into other, other circuits in your spinal cord. And that's what causes the sort of involuntary shiver, shudder type thing, probably because that's part of what your sympathetic, your autonomic nervous system does when you are surprised by something. It's the same process that makes you have goose pimples or shake and shiver, that kind of thing. And it's a a little bit of accidental activation when you're also doing those other neurological processes of, of setting things up so you can actually let the urine out. And I think that's probably what's going on. Thank you very much, Chris. you can ask any question that you want, and I'm sitting here and I'm testifying.
2: It's not looked up. It's all happening in real time. It's nearly like magic, how, how knowledge appears out of the other Chris's head. So we're crossing over to Dennis from Rantontein. Dennis, what's your question, please?
0: Um, yes, hi, good day. question, I say in We got hit by a lightning. It's called a ball lightning. I only found this afterwards. It hit an eight-year-old uh, African wattle, uh, oak tree are also about 90 years old and and three berry trees plus minus 15 year old, but all in one line and some stinkwoods and it killed all of those trees. I'll go off the line if you can explain what the ball lightning does to the rooting and how does it flow. Thank you.
1: Okay, well, when we have lightning, what's actually happening? I mean, this is theoretical because no one's actually proved this. But uh, in a cloud, you have uh, what we call hydrometeors, these are ice crystals. And they're bobbing up and down on air currents. You have big ones and small ones. And they get sorted for some reason by some process we don't really understand. So you end up with the positively charged ones at the top of the cloud and negatively charged ones at the bottom of the cloud. And this makes a big electric field between the bottom of the cloud and the Earth's surface. The negative in the bottom of the cloud repels the negative charges in the Earth's surface. So you have a positive net charge on the Earth's surface. This intensifies the electric field to the point where you then break down the insulation of the atmosphere. This is called ionization. And eventually you start to strip away electrons from the gas in the atmosphere to the point where you get a conductive path like a thread running from the bottom of the cloud down towards the Earth. When the electricity flows down this very thin channel, it, it's literally smaller than, than the digits on a coin um, that, that it starts out at. The electricity flows down the uh, atmosphere and it then increases the amount of ionization. It strips more electrons away from more molecules, making an even bigger conductive pathway. And this leads to something called a plasma. And Huge amounts of current flow down this ionization channel. We think something like thirty to fifty thousand amps of current flows down the the pathway um, and it discharges billions of joules, maybe a hundred ten to a hundred billion joules of energy comes out of the cloud down towards the ground, and it has a huge heating effect. at that sort of flow rate, you get something like a thirty thousand degrees c um, channel of of heating through the atmosphere. And this also this then, basically it boils anything it hits so when it hits a tree if it conducts through a tree it will then just basically turn the water in the tree into gas and make it expand and and blow apart and the things that have the most water are the living tissues in a tree so you basically boil all the living tissues in your tree and kill your tree and if there are other things nearby that tree they also will pick up some of that charge and and, and conduct it down to the ground as well which will boil all those other trees which is why you then you tend to see lots of, of areas that get damaged all in one go and ball lightning is a poorly understood Sort of manifestation of making these plasmas in the atmosphere where you get a, an isolated ball of material which is ionized and very very hot but conductive and probably that's what you were seeing these these glowing areas of the Earth's atmosphere superheated and giving off energy that made them visible but it's at the same time conducting energy out of the cloud down to the Earth's surface
2: Thank you Chris most fascinating we have time for one last call I apologize because we've got lots of callers line up so this last one's going to go to another person called Chris this time in Paul. Chris,
1: go for it. Yes,
0: hi, Doctor. Hi, Chris. I would like to ask, how did we define that there are 24 hours in a day and, and each hour is 60 minutes and, and each minute is 60 seconds? And how was this adopted globally? i listen on the radio. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's more of a historical question than a scientific one. And I don't know the the, the name of the uh, group historically who came up with this notion or why they elected to to do it the way they did but it works out quite nicely mathematically because the circle's got 360 degrees in it and you can have 60 um minutes in and that means 60 into 360 goes quite nicely with 90 degrees at quarter hours and so on so i think there's a mathematical basis to it but as i say it's more of a historical than a science question so i don't actually know what the historical reason for that is
2: Chris, thank you so much. Uh, I want to tell you we're going to talk about wine later on today at 11.30. Um, but one of the worst things if you're a producer of wine and somebody drinks it, they say this wine is interesting. And it's the worst thing that can happen because they don't say anything at all. But as bad as it is in the wine industry, I think the biggest compliment I can certainly give you is that that you're fascinating and most interesting. <laughs> uh, interesting uh, you yeah. really make, make knowledge a uh, very attractive thing. So thanks. Thank it you, was Michael. great you to meet much. you in person. And we hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Cape Town, and you also have some of our good wines to drink. But right now it's ten thirty, and Regan Thor is the latest from Eyewitness News.
1: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that's investing twenty billion pounds in R and D over the next two years, the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities.